0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called The Ringships, written by In Yellow Clad. There was a time when our fledgling species looked to the stars and wondered if we were alone. We wondered if there were others out there, just like us, trapped on a single world, desperate to spread our wings and fly away to a different star to a different world, and begin a new life. We learn in time that our hopes for intelligent life out there amongst the stars was not simply a fantasy, but a reality. We found two separate species, each as young as we were, each curious and naive about how the galaxy truly worked. Together we formed a union, a thriving alliance, both on trade and Military defense and scientific cooperation. We became masters of our space, masters of hundreds of worlds. Yet, we never found anyone else. It was just us, or so it seemed. I was born 20 years before the Union's first contact, and by the time that event came to pass, I was captain of my own starship. I sat upon the bridge, watching as we streaked across the stars. And then, something changed. I remember it well, as though it were only yesterday. Captain, there are false solar systems ahead of us, sir. They don't have any planets. My sensor technician spoke up, and the news alarmed us all. None? Are you sure? I say, my feathers ruffling slightly at the thought. Confirmed. False solar systems devoid of any planetary bodies. Even the asteroids are gone. It's just the stars, and uh wait. One of the stars just vanished as well. Supernova Uh, negative captain. One moment it was there, the next it was just uh gone. This news was naturally quite concerning. Stars do not just vanish, nor do planets. And since there was no debris fields either, they clearly weren't destroyed, which left one option they were stolen. Bring us about, warp to the nearest star, and park us at the edge of the system. I want to see if whatever caused the star to vanish shows up at this one. I say, standing and watching as my orders are carried out. It took us a day to reach the system, but when we arrived, the star was still there, thankfully. Now, all we had to do was wait. I suppose I should talk about myself and my species for the record. I am a member of the species known as the Quassel an avian species that was the first of our union to take to the stars. My name is Salar. My crew is a mixture of my species and the two others that make up the union, the Ogre and the Imph. The former are more reptilian, large and imposing, but kind-hearted folk with a love of warm places. The Imph are smaller crustaceans and have perhaps a few too many limbs but the diminutive size and love of technology make them excellent engineers and technicians, as they can fit into places where the rest of us simply cannot go. We waited in that system for a week. I was starting to think that whatever had taken the star from the other system wasn't going to show. But as I sat with some of my junior officers playing a card game in the dimly lit room, we retreated to the sound of a loud, blaring alarm. I must give my crew credit. There was no hesitation in the response to the alarm as we all dropped our cars and rushed to our stations. Report, I bellowed, while stepping onto the bridge, the alarms going silent but the emergency lights still running. Massive sensor contact on scopes heading right for the star. By the deep gods, it's bigger than the star, my sensor officer said. Can you get a visual? Ah, uh, yes, coming online now. All eyes turned towards the main view screen and we saw the burning orb of heat and light. From behind it, the little pinprick of distant stars vanished, replaced with an inky black void as whatever made its presence known. And, in other parts of our view, more of the same happened, but on a smaller scale. At least a hundred smaller ships appeared, clearly military in design, as we could visually discern multiple weapons, our hardpoints scattered all over the sleek hulls, emblazoned with iconography, It was unknown to us, but it was the larger contact that soon held our attention. A ship of an unusual configuration slowly pulled itself from the inky void and drifted to a stop over the star. The front looked quite similar to other ships, sleek but lacking the many weapons, though it was certainly armed. But behind the sleek front was a single massive ring. We watched in awe as the massive ship started to stretch and expand, the ring splitting into parts as it lowered itself around the star. Almost immediately, the inner ring began to spin once it had lowered itself into place and projected a large shield to protect itself from the coronal ejections that might occur. Then it projected an intense gravity field, grabbing hold of the star in a manner that would not hinder its natural movements. The fleet began to turn, facing the direction they'd come from, and their engines heated up, only to send them and the star, hurtling off to who knew where. We were left in stunned silence, and I was the first to break it. Tell me you recorded that, I said softly, and I saw the sensor officer nod slowly, her beak hanging open. Helm, set a course for the next system. I want a tactical and potential cultural assessment done on everything we scanned about that fleet, I think uh, uh, I think we need to dust off the first contact book. There was a chorus of affirmatives, and we went on our way. Either they had detected us or they hadn't. Maybe we registered as to breed to them. Who knew? What I didn't know was that these unknown aliens had stolen a star with relative ease and had probably stolen all the planets in much the same manner. I hoped that they were not intending to do the same to any inhabited world I came across. The terror of such a thing would be astronomical. Another week passed, and we anxiously awaited the next sighting. We missed the third star getting taken, which left one we currently sat next to as the last on their list. If they even had a list. As expected... I was awoken by the sound of proximity alarms. And when I reached the bridge, I didn't even have to ask for a report. I knew what was happening. Yet again, we watched as a fleet of ships started to appear, and the massive one that the smaller and heavily armed ships were presumably protecting. But this time, we were better prepared. "'Alms, open a channel on all frequencies and send out a greeting. Let's be cordial with these aliens.' "'Hi, Captain.' And so we began to broadcast, and it had a definite effect. The large ring ship did not proceed to capture the storm. Instead, it sat there for a long time before warping away without it. And the fleet of escort ships split into two groups, the first following the ring ship, the other turning towards us. We're being scanned. The ship just hung there in the void before many of them started to spread out, as though clearing their firing arcs of friendlies. But one ship pulled in front, heading right for us. I uttered many prayers in my head, hoping that these aliens were a friendly bunch. Computer intrusion, something's copying our database. Can you lock it out? I asked. via coursing through me. Negative, it's, uh, it's almost alive. I, I, I can't block it, delete it or anything, and, uh, and it's gone. It looks like, uh, it got whatever it was looking for. This wasn't good. Most of the time, that was a sign of aggression. But we wouldn't be able to do anything against a ship like that. Who just a survey vessel, after all, and that looked a hell of a lot like a dreadnought. The alien ship got closer and closer before it slowed to a stop only a hundred miles off our nose. The thing dwarfed us by a massive margin, and I almost felt as though I was staring down a gaping maw of a dragon. sir... We were being hailed, my comms officer said, via causing his voice to be a little choked. Open the channel, I whispered, wondering just what the first words we'd hear would be. Instead of a standard greeting, the screen was dominated by a logo and what appeared to be a company name and slogan, all written in union standard. It even had a little jingle. Radiant Industries, we make the impossible possible. I blinked. As the splash screen faded and we were met by a strange creature. Smooth, hairless, pale skin, with a large amount of fur on the top of their head, painted lips and some sort of item over their eyes. They wore clothing that looked professional and neat, and those lips twisted upwards into a smile at the sight of us. Hello, and thank you for contacting us here at Radiant Industries. "'We ask that you do not interfere in company business, "'but are more than happy to initiate first contact with the new potential customers.' "'The alien spoke our tongue, "'though presumably it was run through a translation program. "'As I noted, the alien's mouth did not quite match the words they were saying. "'Uh, yes, hello, uh, we, um, uh, "'we're just wondering who you were and why you're taking planets and stars.' "'I say, and the alien listens for a moment.' before smiling all the more broadly, smartly keeping their mouth closed while doing so, so as to not show their teeth. The Acquisition Fleet is a mainstay of the company, as our species is in constant need of both resources and new worlds to colonize. I'm sure you can understand that there's always a need for growth, for two new planets and such. Well, of course, sir. But why are you taking them away? I mean, couldn't you just colonize them where they are? Certainly we could but we have refined this particular technique to such a degree that it is actually more cost-effective to bring the worlds and stars to the people who need them rather than bringing the people to the planets with a few thousand light-years away. It also allows for faster colonization efforts, uh, and better supply lines and defensive strategies. We sat in silence, and their spokesperson for the company just continued to smile. If you'd like, I can send your request to the Terran government for a visitation by your ship to see just what we do in person. I, uh, yes, uh, I think that would be a good idea. We should inform our government of this as well. Uh, could we, um, uh, c- could we have some sort of uh, simple private document on your people so our people can have a better idea of who you are? Certainly. One moment, please, sir. Data is transferring now. We shall have a response for you soon, with or without a visitation permit. And the splash screen appeared again, complete with the jingle. Then silence. The other ships clustered up and stayed a distance, while well, the one before us continued to linger. We have their document. It's huge. Most of it seems to be a corporate jargon, but the rest of it is all about their people. They are. Uh, they call themselves humans, though. Or Terrans, I guess. My exo said. I slumped in my chair. "'Send a copy back to command "'and let them know that we've officially made first contact,' "'I said, sounding tired "'Night, nice, sir. Copy. Away. "'Sir, we're getting hailed again.' "'Yet again the splash screen, and the same human appeared. "'Good news, my fine-feathered friend. "'Your visitation permit has been approved. "'Please warm up with our acquisition fleet, "'and we'll escort you to Seoul,' the human said. "'And my helm officer received instructions. "'Understood.' Thank you for your hospitality. Helm, do as they ask, and let us be on our way. The line was cut as soon as we found ourselves surrounded by the fleet, and on our way for the soul. Caught in the wake of the large ships, we were moving at speeds that seemed impossible for our current level of technology, dragged along by Titans. A trip that should have taken months instead took a day, and we were informed that we would be exiting warp soon by the spokesperson. We waited with a hulled breath, just as the fleet dropped from war, And the sight we saw was unlike anything we'd ever seen before. The system was filled with thousands of planets and nearly equal number of stars, all arrayed in such manner that they would not interfere with the others. There were installations around each star, and from what we could deduce, they were managing to keep the stars from aging, to keep them at their prime. And though there were many stars, it seemed like many sources of light did not reach the planets that orbit the other stars. Some form of shrouding technology, allowing them to have proper day-night cycles. It was a feat of engineering that we could never have even dreamed of. There were many ringships as well, and some were heading out to acquire more planets or stars. But as we sat in awe, we saw one settle around a barren planet. Not a single trace of life anywhere on it, but loaded with rich mineral deposits. The ring activated, the shield flared to life, then the gravity systems as well. A single beam shot from part of the ring, boring through the crust, and then several ships drew in closer, siphoning off the molten core. Without the core, our senses detected an increase in the gravity of the ring ship, and we watched as the planet started to buckle and crack breaking apart in a spectacular fashion, but unable to expand past the shield. Once the planet was destroyed, the ring ship disengaged, letting a swarm of other ships swoop in and start gathering up the large chunks of planet, engaging in mining operations immediately. It was efficient, and as we could see, it was happening elsewhere in the system, too. Planets that couldn't support life were cracked and destroyed, used to fuel the species that had stirred in them. Welcome to Sol, We hope you'll enjoy your stay, came the chipper voice of the company's spokesperson, and we were directed on a course through the system to a small blue jewel of a planet. It has been fourteen years since that day, since we discovered humanity. We learned they were stronger, more advanced than we could have ever conceived, and they were friendly. When the Tengra attacked our worlds, it was the humans who stepped in with their mighty fleets. Since that day, we too joined their system. Our wills, our stars integrated into the ever growing system. We look up into the sky now and do not dream of being alone. For when we look up, all we see are friends and the ring ships which bring us the stars. End of story. They missed their chance, written by Dark Prince 010. "'Is this apartment of Mr. Ziklak?' The figure loomed in the doorway, and Ziklack could see that they carried a large case, likely full of tools. "'I'm here to install your hyperlink box and related equipment.' Ziklak nodded, trying to suppress an urge to be nosy as he realized that he was talking to an earthling. The workman had apparently taken his nod as confirmation and ducked his head briefly in a sign of respect and said, "'All right,' I'll get this processed and then we'll be on my way. Don't want to cause too much of a delay this morning. No, oh no, it's fine, the alien replied. I don't mind at all. He was entranced by the form this creature came into his dwelling. The earthling's body was smooth, long and a deep brown. that reflected the light here and there with hints of wings beneath the simple covering on its back. Six long limbs deftly began unpacking the work bag they carried with them and cutting tools were warmed up in preparation to chop into the side of the room to access the wiring inside. Now, hey, do you mind if I move this table here? It is a a, a little bit easier, and I can move it back after I am done. The earthling fully lifted the matchbox that he had converted to use as a table, without any need for assistance, and carried overhead as if it was nothing before setting it down on the far side of the room. He hadn't even disturbed the cup of drash juice that had been sitting at it. ziknak looked closely for what he had always thought he would be able to see on earthlings but despite the surreptitious examination while well, there was a small metal chip at the base of the creature's thorax right below their head and mandibles there were no other large attachments no large pieces of machinery implants or anything else that would suggest mechanical means of achieving uplift earthlings were well known for almost all being uplifts, but far more elegant than a few species of other worlds. A search he had run on his intracranial netlink showed this earthing species particular was referred to as a roach or cockroach. The cockroach must have noticed his staring and spoke up, So I am guessing this is the first time seeing an Earthling in person? The alien blushed for a moment, realizing that he'd been caught staring and admiring the installation mechanic. But nodded. Yes, sir, I find the subject of uplifts to be a somewhat fascinating hobby of mine. Then he realized that this may have been a rude to say, and began stuttering an apology until the cockroach gave a clicking sound. His translator showed a moment later that there had been sound of reassuring approval. No, it's okay. It is a fascinating subject, and Earth definitely has perfected the art of it, apparently. Was there anything in particular that you were curious about? I don't have a lot of time, but this job is going to take at least a quarter cycle. Trying to avoid stammering, Ziplac hesitated for a moment before saying, Most of the species have a mechanism or implant to achieve uplift on their chosen species. I'm curious, do you have one? I think all I see is the translator on your throat. The roach let out another chitter that was translated to a chuckle. Nope, that's all up here. He said, one of his arms reaching up and tapping his head. Turns out that after humans figure out how to make artificial intelligence, and after they found the number of neurons needed was actually pretty modest, they realized the most important thing was just making sure they all connected just right. Took them a couple decades, but they were able to figure out how to prune and grow organic neural connections in order to achieve full uplift using only a few hundreds of thousands of neurons. Ziklak stared in amazement. So, uh, I'm guessing there would be dozens, hundreds of species that would be eligible. The cockroach interjected again, something that he was realizing wasn't necessarily a gesture of rudeness, but more of a hard-to-stamp-down instinctive habit of quick and decisive action. Almost all of them, it turns out. There were a handful of smaller insects and invertebrates that didn't quite have enough to meet the cutoff, but they figured out solutions. If you do see an earthing with a visible neural implant, those would be the ones to help supplement the smaller pool of neurons they do have. Fascinating, Ziklack whispered, more to himself than anything else. So I'm guessing that you must have been a close companion species to humans in order to be uplifted, right? The cockroach made another clicking noise that translated into a rueful smile but polite disagreement. We were less of a companion species and uh, more of a parasite one he said. The alien, noticing the earthling's reticence, didn't press on that subject any further, but he remembered a section he'd seen from the history text. I do wonder if you knew about the Great Pause." The cockroach cocked, his said. Not sure I know what you mean. Well... Autex had noted that humanity, despite being a very promising species and offered admittance to the Council only a few years after the species was introduced to the wider intergalactic universe, had turned down the position. Instead, humanity and Earth had gone almost completely silent for nearly a millennia. Everyone was baffled by it, as species are usually overjoyed and very determined to impress when given the chance at a prestigious nomination. "'Oh!' I think I know who the context is for that, the cockroach said. You see, he was right about that time that humanity also figured out how to perfect neural rewiring. A famous quote from one of the lead scientists, a lovely old woman named Dr. Winsayers, was, We're not really doing something fundamentally new. It's the same yarn, but just a different sweater. Well, old humans started uplifting more of their companion animals for sure. Dogs, cats, some particular types of livestock, that sort of thing. And humanity began asking if this is something they wanted to continue, and only to continue if they felt the rest of their species would want uplift as well. And almost every single one responded unanimously, resoundingly, yes. So humanity continued over the years and decades, reaching out to each new species, uplifting a handful, ensuring that they agreed to the rest of their species should be uplifted, and then proceeding to bring the gift of intelligence, thought, and reason to as many of them as they could. The cockroach shrugged. Of course, there were always a few that were rather opposed to it, and humanity respected their wishes and left them in their natural state. But for the rest, humanity worked hard to weave axons together, restructured and optimized neural pathways with microsurgeries, adaptive drug therapies, and working with whatever unique biology was given species had to ensure that they were all able to benefit. Ziklac sat back, stunned. He stammered, but uh, 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 the amount of resources there would have been. The cockroach clicked the sound that he's translated translated as affirmative. That would take the resources of most of the nations and millions upon millions of scientific experts for the initial uplift. But the public was in support. Every step, every new species building excitement and momentum rather than tempering it. Behind the scientists came armies of crafters ready to create and adapt housing for those who no longer wished to live in the wilderness. There were sociologists, economists, and psychologists ready to help those with questions about their newfound place in the world and how to interact with others. The cockroach turned to Ziklack at this, a significant note of pride in his voice. Fully half of the other clutch mates in the brood that I was laid in have gone on to pursue some philosophy degree or another. I'm one of the odd ones out that I have a knack for electronics and mechanical engineering instead." The cockroach was nearly finished now, claws working furiously as they finished the final cuts and welds for the access line and control box. It was a monumental task, and continued to be a monumental task, even with every set of hands and every additional mind added. That's why it took a little over 900 years. The alien sat back in amazement. So the reason the humans turned down and left an empty seat on the most prestigious and influential government council in the known galaxy was to uplift every possible entity on your entire planet? The cockroach nodded, job complete, as he leaned back against the matchbox table. Yes, sir. But it certainly was a worthwhile project. For one, it meant that when Earth finally did join the Council, it did so with an intelligent population of quintillions rather than mere billions. And that's a conservative estimate. We also entered the stars with a huge array of viewpoints. Of course... There are always those non-corporeal species that were still heavy trouble relating to. But you would be surprised how many species are blinded by biases towards vertebrates versus invertebrates, ocean dwellers versus land species and such. How congresses and meetings of minds were always hectic, occasionally dangerous, but unparalleled in their complexity and breadth compared to every other species and coalition that we've yet to come across in the Milky Way. But the thing that struck me and stayed with me were the stories. Stories of how humans had cared for a member of a species, given them a good, long life with care and love and companionship. My species was not one that was well-loved by most humans, and in many cases was seen to be a pest to be exterminated. But what resonated with me is that even then, there were humans that saw us as something worthy, of love and companionship and care and raised us in homes and safety we were not useful for textiles for meat for herding livestock or for hunting and yet there were still humans who saw us as companions to give us a good long life with love and care for no reason other than the fact that we existed i think what always sticks with me is that this story The story of my species and those who were chosen to be comforted companions received love and safety beyond what we would be able to hope to experience naturally. This story was repeated across almost every known species. Almost every creature on our planet had the same stories they could tell of those humans who had loved them, who had sought out their companionship, no matter their form or use or any factor, other than the fact that they lived on the same ball of rock at the same time as humanity. Humans considered us to be companions long before we had the mind to comprehend it, let alone their words to say back to them. Ziklak nodded in sympathy, preparing a small cup of water for the earthling in a bottle cap sink. And then there was the Wasting Plague. The cockroach nodded, taking off a small baseball hat off the chitinous head and clutching it to his chest. Yes, sir. Uh, Our planet would accept the mantle at the council less than two years later, and had begun to make plans to reach out again when the plague had hit. I know that we've done research and found that it was just an unlucky combination of genetics and virulence, but it almost makes you wish that someone was responsible so that you would have someone to be angry at. The cockroach sighed, leaning back and sipping on the water. (sighs) But like a thunderbolt, humanity was driven effectively extinct. They didn't even realize it at the time, but most of humanity never got to see the stars outside their own system. Nowadays, almost all Earthlings have migrated elsewhere amongst the Milky Way and travel between the stars with regularity. Humans spent so long, so much time and effort making sure that we were all elevated and prepared and cared for, that they squandered the time that they didn't even know was limited. There's so few of them now that even attempts at cloned repopulation is rolling the dice at genetic abnormalities with every passing generation, and on some level it feels the humans are at peace with that. It's like when a family member is on their last breaths, and there is a calmness and serenity. Not one born of bravery, but of satisfaction of a life well lived and goals well accomplished. They gave up their chance so that we could have ours. So now we're on our own. Over a trillion species and one home world. He snapped shut his work case before putting his hat back on his head, helping others like we were helped ourselves so long ago. All thanks to a bunch of gangly pink monkeys who sought to make some new friends. End of story. One Scoop or Two Scoops, written by Echoing Cascade. Engineers, if a physicist proved the existence of a universe that was a cube shaped with red polka dots, they would be able to make a ship to navigate it, given enough time, money, coffee, and uh, maybe a pinch of LSD. And amongst these individuals, none were better at it than humans. At least, that's what most believed. For a while, it was true that a human once stopped an antimatter breach with a scoop of ice cream. People don't talk about all the times they picked the wrong flavor. When I was told I needed to have a bubblegum ice cream available in engineering, I thought it was one of their famous jokes. Then, the updated manual arrived. 4046, pronounced 4046, captain of the long-range vessel, the favorable Tide, was floating towards the quarters of his chief of engineering. Two days ago, their ship was hit by an errant micro-singularity that nearly destroyed it. They had followed the standard procedures, namely putting everything on reserve power, seeding the affected areas, and sending an SOS. But with no response to their call for aid, they were going to have to get, uh, inventive. The Immorak captain, short, gray-skinned, equipped with an anti-grav belt, sighed, as he stopped in front of Jake MacDuff's room. Now I was wondering what kind of human I was getting. The professional, by the book kind, or, or the more classic type. Their chartered course had brought them near the corona of the local store when he got his answer. Ball 046 had asked Jake if he could reinforce the shields or if they would have to chart a new route. He had answered with a, Why don't we just cross it at night? I checked the rules and regulations to see if corporal punishment could be meted out for horrible jokes. Twice. I even asked my senior staff and they agreed with the rule. Though, Katie, the sentient resource, did say that she could sweep it under the rug if I chose to go forward with it. And the medical officer said that he could make it look like an accident. Ball 046 assumed the Doc was kidding. That is until he sent him an encrypted file with ways to dispose of the body. I deleted the file, pretended I never saw it, and offered him a chance to transfer to another vessel next time we were in dry dock. He accepted. The emirac knocked at the door. Jake, enter. Wall 046 slowly entered while reading the data slate in his hand. In accordance with Regulation 2734-B, Subsection 4, he raised his head and found Jake eating ice cream. (sighs) Subsection 4. "'Subjection for frack's sake. Are you eating the emergency ice cream?' "'Jake looked at the bowl in his hand, the melting ice cream on his spoon, and then at his captain. "'Uh... no?' "'The Immerak's hand twitched towards his side-on before he caught himself and remembered why he was here. "'As I was saying, according to the regulations, I now have to give you full run of the ship.' "'Jake threw the bowl of ice cream behind his head, which shattered on impact with the floor.' Four zero four six winced, but Jake didn't seem to notice and was all smiles. S- seriously, four zero four six sighed. Yes, you can cannibalize any ship system and commandeer any resource or personnel to jerry-rig our way out of this mess. Sweet. Five hours, several angry calls from the crew members, and at least one law of physics being insulted later, Jake had called the captain to show him his solution. I call it the Cosmic Rickshaw. 4046 looked at the monstrosity in front of him. It looked like it was made from parts of the engine. A rice cooker, a few plasma rifles, a shield generator, an anti-grav belt, and... uh, 4046 pinched the bridge of his nose and fought the urge to yell. Why is there a medical nano-injector next to an anti belt? Oh, I recalibrated it to work on ceramics to keep the whole thing in one piece. Oh, very well, fine. Why not, but why? Pray tell, is it held in place with a woman's brazier? Oh, yeah, I couldn't get it to hold with anything else. 4046 squinted, at the engineer. Jake threw up his hands. No, no, no seriously, watch. Jake removed the bra, put the injector back with duct tape, and it quickly vibrated itself off. He tried with multiple other adhesives and other binding materials to no effect. Jake shrugged. I have no idea why, but the bra works when nothing else does. Fine. Fine. Wait. How did you figure that one out? You know what? (sighs) I don't want to know. So, how does it work? Captain Faraday had been listening to Captain Six's recount of the miraculous return to civilization. 4046 had stopped at a crucial moment to have a drink. The thing reduced the mass of the ship enough that it could travel to add an appropriate fraction of the speed of light through momentum alone. The colonel nodded. So you then fired the impulse engines and made it back home. 4046 shook his head. Impulse engine was beyond repair, and the main engine was part of the rickshaw. Then, uh, did you? Before he could finish, 4046 interrupted him. The crew put on their still-functioning spacesuits. 4046 took a long, long swig of each drink. And then we got out and, uh, pushed. The colonel raised an incredulous eyebrow, and 4046 responded with a pained nod of affirmation. Faraday then pushed a button on his desk to contact his secretary. Militia, please tell the docking crew to keep uh, the favorable tide as far away from the station as possible. Make sure security personnel is on hand. If Chief Engineer Macduff tries to do anything more scientific than boil water and, uh... We're going to need more whiskey. Colonel Faraday sagged in his seat after draining his glass in one gulp. Lots and lots of whiskey. End of story. Story number two. Biological Warfare, written by Catfish21SM. Sir, we have a problem. What's that? Do you remember that human prisoner that we brought in a few days ago? The one that I ordered you to torture for information? Yes, sir. What seems to be the issue? Is he not divulging information to us? Uh, no, sir. He... he... No, he is, sir. But the information is the issue. What do you mean, soldier? Well, apparently, he was an avid collector of insects in his home world. And what exactly does that have to do with your mission? Well, sir, for some of our recruits saw him release something when he exited the ship earlier. What did he release? Is it going to be a threat to our ecosystem? Well, sir, he called it a, um, um, um a, a queen murder hornet. A what-what now? A queen murder hornet, sir. What in the galaxy is that? Apparently, they are an aggressive species of insect native to the humans' homeworld, an apex predator that is even capable of hunting and killing humans. Sergeant, are you telling me that there is a Category 9 death world apex predator that hunts and kills humans on the loose in our base? Uh, no, sir. We believe that it has escaped our base, sir. Its current location is unknown. Why didn't you order the soldiers to kill it? It was too fast and agile, sir, and was gone almost as soon as we'd seen it. It's that fast. That's uh, terrifying. Uh, we have to let Emperor Kod know immediately. How long can this thing live? Our prisoner indicates that this specimen can live for about one soul cycle, sir. Half of its lifespan has already passed. That's terrific news. Most species from Sol have much longer lifespans. Thankfully, there is only one, uh, and the species from Sol require at least two to reproduce. Sir, uh, that is apparently, um, inaccurate. Uh, how so? There are apparently several species on Sol that are capable of reproduction, with only one member of the species. Uh, please tell me that this is not one of those rare exceptions. It is, sir. Wonderful! And please do tell how quickly the species is capable of reproducing. Let me guess, it can have over a dozen offspring in a single Sol cycle. Um, well, if the prisoner is not lying to us, sir, then uh, this particular specimen is capable of uh, souring a uh, hundred offspring in a single day. What? Did you just say a hundred offspring every cell cycle? No, sir. A hundred offspring every 24 human hours. No. That's physically impossible. I hope so, sir. If that's true, then we're doomed. Have you confirmed with the prisoner how to eliminate this predator? Surely there must be a way. Yes, sir. Uh, The prisoner indicates that once the species is established, it's impossible to eliminate it without glassing the planet. He indicates that even the human's modern-day technology is still not capable of driving the species to extinction. We're completely doomed. Tell the Emperor to prep for immediate evacuation. I knew it was a mistake to wage war on a death world species by the way did you happen to get this creature's hunting method is it at least quick and a painless death yeah. according to our prisoner it incapacitates its victims with intense pain before swarming them with vast numbers and slowly ripping them apart oh, great who in the right mind would collect something like that according to him sir, so it's one of the least deadly species that he collects oh of course it is death welders There's never anything normal about them. Sir, I think we're officially Deathworlders now too, aren't we? I I suppose you're right. Our planet will have to be reclassified as a Tier 1 Deathworld soon enough. Completely uninhabitable. Should we let the public know, sir? No. It's too soon for that. There'll be immediate panic, if we do. Prep for evacuation. We'll need to save as many lives as possible. They'll find out sooner, or later anyway. But at the very least, we'll need to focus on getting the Emperor off world first. Hopefully, this murder hornet doesn't decide to hop a ride on one of our ships as we are evacuating. That would be the single largest blunder in our species' history. Second, only to the current one. End of story. The Doom of Man, written by Dark Prince 010. They had first detected the object a mere week before it crashed, embedding itself in the unforgiving grey soil of Thur. The ship had been heavily damaged, and while its rate of speed was incredible, the fact it held together, despite nearly being shorn through of multiple fronts, was exciting for the astronomers and engineers looking over the telescope images and worrying to the military. The had developed spaceflight almost two centuries before the craft was sighted, But even with the craft in orbit and the robust beginnings of a space-born defense navy, hundreds of ships strong, none had an engine that could quite match the velocity of the craft that had entered the system. To achieve such speeds would have required slingshotting around a larger body. And while their system had suitable planets, the quickness of the approach had meant that they were helpless to do anything but watch. Hoping that the crash might spare the agony of anyone who yet lived within Nearly every sensor that could be scrounged together had focused on the craft, but the damage had meant that all had to listen to the scrambled noise, static, and the occasional sounds of a voice within. Thurian ears had evolved early for their species and were incredibly acute. A million years earlier in their evolution, their precursors relied on warning calls echoing across masses and through scrublands to warn of predators, wildfires, and cutting dust storms. Even a millennia ago, long before they had begun to master electricity and industry, news was transmitted through caller towers spaced miles apart, and information passed like a baton until it reached the destination city, even across continents and peninsulas. Now, the caller towers were decorative antiques and historical footnotes, but the hearing remained. With the crooning and murmur of all other forms of speech and nuance they had accumulated over their emergence as a leading species of their planet. It was thus incredibly unsettling that the most coherent noises coming from the craft had been wails, not of pain or agony, but sheer and unfiltered fear. The crash was noted by seismometers as well as the initial scouting aircraft but the craft had parachutes and chemical thrusters it used as a last moment to try and reduce the impact. The craft broke at many of the damaged areas, but the primary compartment seemed intact, and the military had approached it with the humming weapons and rumbling tanks at the ready. An overhead orbital weapon platform, one of the first of its kind, was tasked to watch the site, ready to offer megatons of kinetic weaponry if the occupants offered threat hours passed. The fires sputtered and eventually ran dry of fuel, and under the watchful eyes of the troops and supporting artillery, scientists finally got a chance to approach and see the craft firsthand. The ship was made of alloys familiar to them, ones they had found to be of exceptionally strong and durable, capable of repelling energy and kinetic weapons to an impressive degree. Cuts in the wing from an unknown ascendant had cut these as neatly as if by manufacturing laser. Such a cut would have taken hours to revolve with such a laser. And yet, this must have scarred the craft in the mere seconds of engagement window would have presented. Cuts such as these riddled the ship, and further investigation showed that despite shearing free during the crash, they too shared the clean-cut edge and extensive deep carbon scoring all around the damaged areas. It was during this close investigation that the message was heard from the first time. They are coming. They are doomed. It was garbled, crude and harsh, to the ears of the Thurians in both pronunciation as well as tone. Then it was repeated, this time notably clearer. The grating harshness, now more discernible, has an edge of panic. They are coming. They are doomed. It was being shouted, screamed by a voice within the crew compartment. A hand appeared at the window, metal articulated joints clasping and grasping nothing before it began to hammer against the reinforced polycarbonate. Then it disappeared. A hiss of pressure and a cloud of condensation surrounded the door as the hand found the latch inside. A retreat was ordered. Shouting commands were passed down, and a thousand plasma and laser weapons were armed and trained on whatever was about to emerge. The cloud cleared, revealing a form. slim at the waist and impossibly broad at the shoulders, with only four limbs instead of eight. The head was an ugly, rounded, and massive teardrop instead of the Thurian's smooth and elongated tooth-lined snout. The eyes were unsettling as well, equally disproportionate to the size of the head, each the size of a Thurian hand and possessing a flat black expanse instead of the normal triangular pupil. As it stumbled forward, the light of the Thur sun glittered on metal skin, and the joints could be seen as socketed and articulated mechanisms. There were other areas, damaged from the crash or the attacker, who caused the ship's failure. And beneath the superficial layer more mechanisms could be seen. The voice, repeating its warning, was now discernible enough that it could be discerned as electronic in nature, too, emanating from the sole robotic survivor. They are coming. They are doomed. While his name was noted and taught in schools as the one who made first contact, Nest Patron Dunja stepped forward and addressed the alien robot. What? What is coming? The damaged machine took a stumbling step forward, causing a matching step back in fear from all present. But more than one set of eyes glanced through the stars from where the doomed ship had emerged from. The survivor made a garbled screech, repeating as if it refined its words into discernible and the clear Thurian dialect as learning algorithms took effect. Humanity! 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 Across the continent, Watching the live video feed, advisors to the regional leaders shrugged. The name of this entity was unknown to them. Indeed, this robotic messenger was the first sign that other life existed outside of Thur itself. Patrian Dunja spoke again, in words that a Thurian child today could recite for you by heart. What can we do against this humanity? The messenger, silent, and then spoke a single word was not repeated, but instead a warbled in and out of being a word, and being screamed, RUN! Although those present could not hear nor see it, this cities across the there were shouts and cries of fear, where the broadcasts were being aired. Run, but in-system travel, was as far as the Thurians had come, and the scourge sounded capable of ravaging an entire system, let alone a planet. FDL technology had been developed, true but only a decade or so previously, and the skip drive had not been tested for jaunts for more than a dozen light years. Many began to suspect that faltering budgets and unimpressed reactions to the technology would change in months to come, but those thoughts were put aside as the nest patron calmed his frills of the sudden anxiety and spoke again, Hi, hey, where did they come from? What are you? The voice of the robot ground out again, this time sounding like painting breaths as the energy sources powering it began to fade. From above, the brightest star in the sky. Eyes faced upwards, it was a familiar star known as the Yasari Ulpa, or the Red Lantern, fixed and almost unmoving in the sky. It had proved a navigational point for sailors and travelers for generations before it was anything but a flickering and distant reddish spark in the sky. There was an echo across the world, a gasp, as Sarah had disappeared. Astronomers who had trained telescopes on it before it vanished reported that the space was dark. No star was visible, and instead the darkness of space had replaced the red lantern. There were cries of despair from the soldiers and researchers present, and the dread had become almost a tangible thing. Nest patron Dunja spoke for the last time to the machine. The last questions that are today historically immortalized. How long do we have one rotation around your star? Then all goes dark. The animation of the robot, the movement and servers that attempted to struggle and stand despite the heavy damage, slowed. Came to a stop. The nest patron recalled hearing only one more sing before the voice of the messenger faded the doom of man comes then he was still some stumbled back and the crash site was quarantined in the following days and weeks while the fires had long since gone out there were worries it might contain unknown pathogens or more worryingly That it might have been marked, tracked by the Hunters of Stars, the alien warning that dubbed humanity. Thur began to build the great fleet. What do you think it'll look like when we get back? His life mate tried and failed to hide a scoff, gently squeezing his mid-shoulders with her arms in reassurance. That's assuming there will be anything to come back to, dearest. Dunja was gazing out the window. It was more of just an oversized porthole, really. But through it he could see the glittering orb of Thur surrounded by what looked like a cloud of glitter. It had taken almost an entire rotation, and the whole of Thur's industry had turned and averting their extinction. Factories had been retrofitted, converted, and the skip drives began to be mass produced to fuel the fleet's desperate jump away from their doomed planet. The military had advanced in research schedules, now funded with blank checks by nations desperate for an advantage. Any advantage against whatever might attempt to follow. Already the ships of the great fleet had been gifted with rudimentary shielding, not quite as strong as the alloyed hull the unknown energy weapons had cut like raw meat, but it might provide them with a momentary relief from whatever weapons humanity could turn to them. Likewise, the first of the railguns had been installed a single pair for each Some generals had protested, saying that the distribution would make it harder to penetrate enemy armor or, sky gods forbid, enemy shielding. However, other tacticians had argued that this would ensure a loss of a ship. Even many ships would not cripple or nullify the great fleet's ability to strike back. At once, the field of glitter burst into fire as thousands of sublight fusion engines ignited. Gaining speed, they began to advance and Dunja made sure to drink in as much of Thur as he could, as his life mate ignited her own engines, piloting them to the designated jaunt point, outside the orbits of their moons. Then there was the hum fading into the grumbling wine, and with a flash of white light from dozens of light years of passing stars, Thur was gone. Approximately forty-eight hours after the great fleet abandoned Thur, Isara Ulpa flickered back into light, unharmed. If one had been upon the surface of Thur and focused on the red lantern with one of the lenses of their prized observatories, the sight of a ship, barely more than a large freighter, would have become visible from where Isara was now shining. Focusing closer on the approaching ship, it has become clearly apparent in its ill repair. Carbon and fuel stains decorate the hull, which shows the chip remains of at least three sigils, and two different sets of paint. Two shapes can be seen through the heat-shielded viewport of the cabin as it rumbles through the atmosphere towards where the messenger robot had crashed. Setting down a few hundred meters away, the engines cut out with a protesting clank, and a hatch opened, following closely afterwards by a rope ladder. The two figures descend and made their way over to the quarantine area. Ducking under warning tapes and pushing aside the stenciled barricade, the suited figures finally stand before the robotic corpse of the messenger, left where he fell out of a combination of thankful reverence and wary caution. Leaning forward, one of the figures crouches down, putting open a hatch in the back of the robot with practiced ease, and putting a fist-sized cylindrical container out of the mess of mechanics. Tossing it over the shoulder, the figure flipped open a patch on their waist, putting out an identical cylinder. The power cell was glowing with healthy blue, and they worked their glove back in, inserting it and burning it back to close the hatch. A moment later, and the voice began again, They are coming! They are doom. They are coming! The head angled up, catching sight of the two figures. Oh! They came! The closer figure flipped open his visor, revealing a smiling and unshaven human's face inside. Fifty-one! How was your nap? The two visual processors on the front narrowed slightly like non-existence again do you think next time i could get a backup cell so that i can the man held up his hand no can do for the acquisition protocol state that no backups or redundant systems can be included in case of sensor sweeps the robot's voice was bored and flat more so than the lifeless tone might suggest you two have fun waiting henry the other figures slipped open his visor eyes narrowing in annoyance "'As much damn fun as you can have while waiting for someone to pack their crap and leave already. "'Thanks, Space Christ, for Blackheart's rest, "'or else I would have had to strangle Julian after our tenth damn game of poker.' "'Julian shrugged as Fifty-One's voice cut in, "'a distinctly annoyed tone added to the normally flat inflection. "'Blackheart's rest, assholes. "'Acquisition protocols state that you're not supposed to leave the ship either.' "'There was a pause as he turned to Julian, who just grinned with guilt.' What if someone had sent a ship over, found an empty freighter and a light year out, who was blocking their view of their favorite nightlight, and blew it to shit? The robot turned through the crashed remains of the ship as he pointed with a manipulator arm. You see that crap? When we were issued that, it took me two weeks to cut it like that, and they have rail guns that could blow a hole in the plating with thickest two shots. Two shots! The manipulator arms were all in the air now. We don't even have a plating that good. "'Acquisition distribution only gives that stuff out to the sea-chips, "'so you know what would happen if their guns hit your freighter with even one shot!' Henry cleared his throat, garbled, flipped up his visor, and spit a loogie onto the nearby rock, and then flipped his visor back down. After the filters had a moment to clear the air, he grunted, "'We get blown to fucking kingdom come, big fucking whoop!' He turned, looking at the horizon, where the distant spires of the empty city should be seen. Biggest score yet, though, uh what, five, ten billion or so on a 15k diameter metalcore world. I think it's a bonus if they're warp-capable and still leave without causing any more fuss. Julian let out a whoop before shouting, I'll get the beer. He ran off towards the freighter as 51 followed, complaining about the lack of reward for his hard work as well. Henry just enjoyed the warm Thurian sun in his face, through his visor, and smiled a little while no one could see. God! I love my job. End of story. For humans, everything is a weapon. Even the flaw. Written by SlowAD2584 Look, Trigperfity, it's impossible to enforce the no-weapons-allowed protocol with the humans. I know that it may seem impossible, bumby bumba floop but this is about safety and well being of other residents of the Habitation Center. I'm fairly certain, what with a bit of careful formatting, the regulations we could. Can... Ah! So that's it. You just don't understand, Norm. Have you seen it? Those humans, the Xenoanthropologist experts say, are a Class 11 tool user, with an always active subconscious plan and contingency ID. With flight or fight instincts honed on Earth, they're Class 11 Hellworld. I know that's a rather lot of class 11s, but it gets to the point across pretty clearly. For them, literally everything is a weapon. No, come on. Not everything. What about a spoon? Oh, by the dark star, do not remind me. Oh, I can never look at those eating implements the same ever again. (sighs) I get uncomfortable just holding one while I eat. Now acutely aware of its uh, concave rigidity. An ability to under-leverage oh, things with surprisingly large amounts of force. That sounds um horrifying. So okay then, no more metal eating utensils with fragile wood extract. It should be Oh, Ick! What are you trying to do to me? The splintered shank wounds of the shattered and ratted blinter stick through the throaxial vesicle of that poor poor buffoon that picked that fight I still don't think they got all the slivers out. No, oh, my word. Fine, then. Utensils. No tables or chairs. They can just eat with their hands on pillows and cushions. That we prove... Uh, what? Seriously? Why are you wincing like that? Ugh, it's a joke that still makes me twitch. They say, wet polyester is very strong, never break. But piss rag snaps necks. No, for the love of the Teal Star. Now you're just making things up. I really wish I was, Trigger Buffett-y. But you get my point. No weapons allowed is simply not enforceable with them. Then we just take everything away. They can live in an empty smooth hab space where they cannot possibly have any weapon. They would still have the floor. The floor? Okay, now how could they possibly use the floor as a weapon? Oh, we actually have a recording on that incident from the other day. Uh, Hold on. The video from the Baron cargo bay transferred to you where a human was backed into a flush corner by a large brutish bubati warrior, who apparently took offense with the giggling, drunk human for some reason. The proud warrior species gestured and revoked the human, seeming to feel confident in its dense carapace armor, covering every part, every joint of its fearsome genetic design. He also thought that he caught the human in a place where he would have no weapons available. He was wrong. As the bubati warrior rushed in and grappled the human, they struggled for a bit, gripped arms in arms, and after the boobity smashed his third limb down and broke the human's nose, the human got a serious sober look for a moment, and they both stumbled over and fell to the ground hard. The human got up and wiped the blood from his nose and walked away. The boobity warrior was dead. Investigations judged it self-defense and an accidental fatality. But privately, secretly, everyone knew. They didn't just fall. The human tripped the warrior, then leveraged his body mass over the center of the fall rotation, and the first part of the boobity warrior to strike the ground was the back of his head. While the human, during the fall, managed to get his forearm braced on the warrior's forehead, adding all of his mass to that moment of initial impact as well. It was a sickening combination of mass, rotational conservation, timing, leverage, and violent intent. No, oh my! Look! I've been telling you, everything, literally everything, is a weapon for them. I cannot pretend to understand how hellish their primitive evolution must have been to have owned their tool use to this degree. But then how? How are we to control the humans if this is the case and everyone is at constant risk? Well, well, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Just chill with them, appeal to their higher minds, their sense of humor, if we can manage it. They do, after all, come in peace. Well, uh, that doesn't seem very reassuring at all if, um... Oh, I don't think you get the deeper meaning to peaceful. Let me see if I can remember it. Now, uh, I'm just paraphrasing here, but, uh, there is a difference between a peaceful man and a harmless man. A harmless man could not hurt you even if he tried. A peaceful man can absolutely ruin you, but chooses not to. I, uh, I, I still don't see how that makes anything... It points out how they don't really want to be jerks. That they could always have a weapon at hand has always been a certainty, but they don't want to go looking for a fight. When you calm down a bit from the shock and horror of them, it is actually a gizzard-warming fact that their, um, heart thingies are in the right place. I think that's how they say it. Well, I certainly am never going to get within a thousand spans of one of those monsters. Oh? Haven't you heard? High Command has decided humans make fantastic station security forces. We're going to be the bosses of dozens of them very soon. No! Uh, you just simply must be pulling my tentacle. I think I'm going to be ill. Oh, come on. They are all right. They grow on you a bit once you get to know them. They are actually kind of fun and clever and always down for a laughing good time. I'm still trying to master their uh, dark humor. Uh, but I think one of their sayings kind of applies ya? Yeah? If you can't beat them, then beat them. You're really not helping to make this any better. I know, but it's kind of funny though, right? Uh, I mean, I can almost get the humor. End of story. Story number two. Don't Lie to Humans, written by Catfish21SM. We stand here before Galactic Council today to hear the case between the gratuity and the human. Senator Vixkorvek, you may address the council. Thank you, dear fellow council members. It is of utmost disgust that I stand here before you today to report that our home star of the Humbertel was destroyed by a human superweapon. Human, Senator, is the report true? It is, however, she exaggerates. How so? It was a warning shot. Everyone here knows that they have a binary star system. We only destroyed the small one, and the impact had no effect on their homeworld. Our homeworld is rocked daily by massive earthquakes caused by the gravitational ripple of one of our system stars systematically exploding. You started it by threatening to blow up our homeworld. We don't have a weapon capable of doing that. Well, you said you did. Silence! You will maintain order in front of the Galactic Council. Sorry. Sorry. Good, human senator. While it is not technically a violation of the Galactic Council regulations to build such a weapon, why would you ever feel the need to do such a thing? As you know, humans feel a constant need to defend ourselves. Evolving on a Category 9 death world, we were under constant threat from outside forces for most of our evolutionary past. Most of you know that the Gratuity have been bragging for years now about their development of a light-speed capable Planetbuster weapon. Thus being humans, we were forced to respond to such threats by building our own, bigger guns. Senator Vykskorvac, how do you respond? We thought that everyone knew that these were empty threats. We thought that everyone knew that it was impossible to build a Planetbuster-class weapon. Human Senator, how do you respond? Apparently, it wasn't impossible. Gratuity, Senator. Your response? Do you have any response, Senator? Apparently, it wasn't impossible. It appears that we have reached the end of our debate. Let's put it to a vote, then. Should the humans have to face consequences of their actions? Various members of the council looked down at their pads in what could only be described as a species version of nervousness, fear, or panic as they placed their votes. The council's decision is unanimous. The humans will face no punishment. However, it is requested that you immediately begin dismantling your weapon now. Okay, we can do that. That was easy. You humans are being strangely cooperative today. Yeah, well, we were planning on decommissioning the old piece of junk soon anyway. So, it's really no big deal. The entire room fell into a deep, almost trance-like silence as the human ambassador walked out of the room. Within the following three hours, a new record was formed for how quickly the Galactic Council could decide on and pass a new galactic law. Galactic Law 000002. Don't lie to humans. End of story. Barkins at the Space Market. Written by Marilyn of Many. This was by far the sleaziest place we'd stopped for supplies at least while I'd been part of the crew. For all I knew, the upstanding little courier starship had visited some real dives under the previous leadership. But Captain Sunlight was both respectable and smart. I wondered whose idea it was to stop at this free-weeding anarchy market, set up on an asteroid that somebody had installed a gravity generator on. It was an atmosphere, too, and a wide variety of stalls on this mile-long hunk of rock, but not much in the way of oversight i saw two different fistfights in progress amongst the other ships while we exited onto the landing pad okay announced captain sunlight standing as tall as she could which wasn't much lizardly little thing that she was but she looked dignified Mimi, blip and blop come with me trilly take one or two of the others with you anyone else object to staying to guard the ship it was a hearty chorus of nose z turned to the faceted eye on the pair of bystanders walking a little too close clicked his pincher arms at them until they scooted away. In the distance, something that looked like a firework colored the sky. A polite claw tapped my elbow. "Want to come with, asked Coles, the heat-seeker with the dull red scales. He was both shorter and stockier than the captain, and more importantly, he was good friends with Triddy. It's a pretty interesting place, sir. I've been here once before. How safe is it? I asked, wanting to be convinced. There were some bizarre things for sale in the stalls visible from here. She'll be fine as long as we're careful, he said, especially with her around. He lifted chin towards the insectile horror that loomed over him. Truly loved looming. Yes, she said, especially for me. She flexed her own pinches, glossy black to Z's purple, and chuckled darkly. The red patterns on her carapace were especially vivid in the light of the nearby sun. I smiled. Trudy was terrifying, but she was our terrifying. Sure, I would love to come. Calls aimed a claw in the opposite direction of one that Captain Sunlight was looking towards. Pretty sure I saw some earth animals for sale as we landed. Oh. Well, why didn't you say so? I asked. Lead the way. We checked in with the captain, promised to be careful, and were off. I had some interplanetary credits in my pocket that I didn't really plan on spending, but it was good to be prepared. I also had a mini stun gun in a different pocket. This place was just as chaotic as I expected, like an alien farmer's market with a distinct low-life element. Here was a humanoid selling pottery that glowed. There was a tentacled alien selling food that moved. Over there was a would-be pickpocket getting a tar beaten out of them by a large, hairy Watson. A hand appeared around the corner of another stall and grabbed a power cell and disappeared. I kept my own hands close to my pockets, wishing I'd worn something with zipper pouches. Ah, said Treddy. There is the media. She didn't bother hissing in normal conversation, but as she led us over to a booth lined with shelves and run by small individuals, I fully expected intimidation to come out soon. Just before we reached it, Coles wrapped a knuckle on her foreleg. Hey, you'll be at the end of the row, see? He pointed. Yes, Treddy agreed. With a nod, Coles left her to her bargaining and waved me onwards. I was a little concerned about this, but then the end of the row wasn't far. We could yell for her to come charging over if need be. See those guys in the solo ponchos? Coles asked. He didn't need to point. I squinted. Hard not to. The clothes that the two plant-like people were weren't as bright as the actual sun, but they sure were unpleasant to look at. The other shopkeepers were giving them some distance, leaving space between their little cart and the proper stalls. Aside from the eye-searing fashion, they had ropey green limbs and faces like those rose blossoms that wanted to be mandibles. Fleshy, maroon, sharp-toothed mouth in the middle, and at least half a dozen eyes scattered throughout. More... Then a little creepy. I was watching with a mag lens earlier, Cole said. With the classification settings, they've got earth animals. He was watching my face as he said it. The series of expressions that I went through were probably interesting to see, as I got a proper look at what was on the cart. Earth animals, yay. Oh, which ones? Uh those look like fish balls, but there's no water inside, just a uh, fur? Those cats shoved into fish balls. I felt my face grow stone. "'Carls,' I said. "'Who do we report animal cruelty to around here?' One of the plonk guys was waving a ball around, shouting about potted predators. A passerby turned him down, and he yelled an insult after him. "'Uh, nobody?' I watched the guy hold up a different one and say something about food paste squeezed in through the lid. When he flipped the cat to demonstrate, a petty smell filtered out. "'What about theft?' I asked. "'Also, no?' "'Good,' I said, voice fat, "'Go get Trilly. "'Then help me steal these.' "'It took less convincing than I thought. "'Trilly already had her selection of media in a bag slung behind her "'when she chuckled evilly. Cole's cracked his knuckles and talked strategy. "'Then we went for it. "'Hello,' I said, approaching the sellers alone. "'How many of these do you have?' "'Everything on this cart,' said the taller one with the bigger blossomed head. "'Limited supply. "'Very valuable. "'Get them before they're gone.' He picked up a fishbowl full of grey fur, turning it like a fine art appreciator. A tiny face with big eyes peered out, mewing silently. Stars. These were kittens. You don't have a source for more, I asked, trying to sound unimpressed. These are very exotic from a faraway planet, he said. The short one bent to pull a big bowl from the bottom shelf of the cot. Perhaps we could interest you in a larger model. It's a one-of-a-kind. That's the mother cat. Good, I straightened up. Now take all of them, I said. Every one you have. The sleazy pair chortled and fawned and named a price that could have bought a single-seater spaceship. I spilled out my tiny stun gun and aimed it at the tall one. No, I'll just be taking them. They, of course, laughed at me. I pulled out their own weapons, which Cole had spotted and identified through the holsters. These were also stun guns, but a bigger and more painful model that put mine to shame. They weren't, however, very effective on people with exoskeletons. Trilly leapt out from behind the nearest stall, crossing the distance in a heartbeat of flashing black and red limbs, then reared up to stand over them with the pincers flared, shrieking at ear-splitting volume. I'd already ducked to the side, so while they stumbled back and aimed, I got a great view of Coles jumping forward to grab their stupid ponchos and yank them off their feet. One of them shot Trilly in the foreleg, making her hiss a little, but the other didn't even manage that. And before I could use my little pea-shirt, Coles had tackled them and wrestled the guns from both. With an oversized stun gun in each hand, we got to his feet and aimed at the pair, just daring them to try something. Tall badass he was. What did we do to you? Asked the tall one, rubbing his wrists, but otherwise holding still. Yeah, how did we piss you off? The smaller one demanded, eyes locked and Trillie. I stepped forward with anger in my voice. You didn't offend either of them, I said. You offended me. At their baffled silence, I continued. Where did you get these animals, and what makes you think that it's okay to keep them contained like that? They both answered at once, and neither was terribly helpful. Some space trader somewhere, they didn't even know where the cats were from. They're from my planet, I informed them, and they should never be treated like this. Any human can tell you that. Their answer was just a mumbling that sounded like, yeah, okay. Have you ever met a human before? I asked, stepping closer. I leaned in. My people eat things that look like you. They held very still and didn't object when Trilly pulled their cart away. Cole stepped back to follow, stun guns still aimed. I put mine back in my pocket and gave them a final glare. Do not try this again, I said, or I will know. I turned on my heel and followed Trilly. With Coles bringing up the rear, he kept the guns. Shopkeepers and bystanders watched in curiosity, but none seemed particularly bothered by any of that. I heard what sounded distinctly like laughter as he walked away. The hustle and bustle that had been quieted a bit gradually resumed to normal volumes. I took the card handle from Trilly. Thank you both. Trilly chuckled. <laughs> my pleasure. Yeah, happy to help. Cole said, moving up to walk alongside. He looked over the half-dozen balls that were rattling a bit, though I tried to pull the janky cart smoothly. "'When you said you'd know,' I held my chin up. "'As far as I can tell, I will,' I said. "'Any psychic abilities on the part of humans is for them to worry about.' Cole's laughed quietly and found the safety setting on the stun guns, saying nothing. We got the cart into the ship without any objection from the crewmates we passed, though there was a fair amount of curiosity." Trillian Cole stopped to tell the story in the lounge while I made a beeline to the medbay. i require use of the scanners, I told Eggskin, who was understandably surprised. But at the sight of the cats, they wasted no time in bringing out everything required for a full checkup. I made sure to scan, for contagion first, Cotton all. I certainly didn't trust these bags to be sanitary. All clear, Eggskin said. They pulled gloves on over the yellow-green scales, Do we have spare carrying crates in the storage oh good point we should put the family together i opened the door and leaned into the hallway hey mo could you please bring a mid-sized carrying crate it's urgent mo had been going on a different direction but he turned redly in a dark blue tentacles and said sure thing thank you i called after him he was back in no time with his crate an ideal size for us to put mama cat into after her scan she was dehydrated but didn't show any signs of having been there long. Good. A bit of proper food and a reunion ought to be just the thing. When we put the first kitten in with her, the purring was so loud it brought tears to my eyes. Exkin and I wasted no time in checking the others. They were all okay, not even any fleas. I was talking with Exkin about where to keep them for the time being when the door opened and let Captain Sunlight in. A curious crowd waited in the hall. I stood to attention. "'I am not apologizing,' I said over the tiny kitten muse. She shook her head. "'No, I don't expect you to. "'Are you hoping to keep them on board, though?' I shook my head. "'I'm sure I can find a home for them at the next space station. "'Anywhere with a lot of humans, really. "'These are little cuties. Uh, "'The mom didn't even hiss at me, so she ought to raise them to be friendly.' Captain Sunlight nodded. "'All right, then. "'How about you keep them in your quarters as soon as they're clear to leave the medical bay?' Yes, uh, I was thinking that would be best, I said. I'll just have to be careful opening the door. Maybe I can a net as a barrier that I can step over, to at least to slow them down. I'll leave you to figure out how to keep them from roaming the halls, she said. Or the engine room or the cockpit. Yes, I will. She left it at that and opened the door to shoo people away from the convalescing animals. The card was already out there with the empty bowls and the food paste that would be going in the kitchen trash. I saw paint rummaging around the miscellaneous junk on the lower shelf which i hadn't bothered to touch her orange tail straightened with excitement here hey there's money in here i winced captain sunlight gave me an undisreadable look i felt bad about it but then i looked down at the kittens tumbling over the mother each getting a lick in turn and the feeling vanished we can buy cat food with that i said the captain nodded of course then she sighed mimi is going to be insufferable First we find a replacement hoverbike after all. Now this. A gruff voice called from down the hall. Told you it was a good idea to stop there. I grinned. The cats, thank you. A toothpaste green octopus head popped into the doorway. Name one after me, said Mimi, waving a tentacle. I grinned wider. I think that's a great name for a cat. End of story. Please... Don't drag the humans into this conflict, written by going over that cliff. The lightless room is engulfed by an eerie quietness, interrupted only by the sporadic coughing of one particular cadet seated in one of the back rows. The lights are already turned off and the projector turned on as the head instructor walks in. Good morning, class. I have bad news and, uh, bad news. Everyone's worries had just been confirmed. The rumors were real. Official reports confirm that yesterday, in proximity of the disputed SX-9318 star system, the Korean destroyer KFS Rika D-9063 unprovokedly attacked and sank our cargo ship, Steel Whale. The deafening silence rings louder than a thousand cannons. Everyone knows that the attack didn't come out of nowhere, as propaganda tries to argue. These border skirmishes have been going on for months, and the fact that the authorities refused to disclose the exact coordinates of the accident suggests, if not confirms, that Attilian ships was in fact sailing in Korean space. Now, as our politicians are doing their very best to escalate these easily solvable issues into a war, our diplomats are sweating their asses off not to ignite a new conflict. Meanwhile, the military have to sacrifice our hearts and souls to protect them. The cadets are uneasy, to say the least. They are just a couple weeks from graduation, and know that if anyone was to fight the upcoming hostilities, it would be them. New fresh meat for the grinder, as they'd like to joke about. They are laughing no more. As much as I have faith in you and in my training, I want to give you some actual advice from someone who actually has some experience in these sorts of things, in the hope that you will never have to use my teachings. As everyone grabs something to take notes on, the instructor reaches out for the projector's remote and starts his brief presentation. The first slide is just a simple, know your enemy. This lecture was initially intended as a farewell and good luck speech, Murray would have shared some of my tips and tricks on how to survive an encounter with a pissed-off, higher-ranking officer. Given current events, I quickly prepared something else for you. It's a bit barren in content, but I will make up for it by boring you to death with my speech, says the old Tellian, lightening the mood in the room a But given the circumstances, I will just tell you what I think is best for you. The truth You can put down your pens and crayons. There will be nothing to memorize, just things to keep in your heart. A bit confused, eventually everyone put aside what was on their desk. As you can see, the title of my presentation is Know Your Enemy. I'm sure you passed with flying colors your intel gathering and pattern analysis courses. You might be thinking that you know your enemies, the Galtians, already enough, right? Some uncertain members and quiet replies came from the sea of heads lost in the dark. And you would be right. That was a trick question. You spent years studying Caltian military history and psychology. But as stated by the title, those are not your true enemies. Their allies are. Well, they could be, to be precise. Although the listeners are by all means greenhorns, everyone would understand the basic functions of a defensive pact and the consequences of declaring war on a member of one. The Coalition of the First Arm is a strong regional power with an experienced fighting force, having fought and won a war against the Union. As of now, our intelligence confirms that no member of the Coalition has any intention to step in and provide actual support to the Kalthians, as they deem this conflict outside the greater interests. Also, because there is an unwritten agreement in the Coalition and our own alliance to avoid a regional war on this side of the Milky Way. Border wars and star skirmishes, as they are called, are a somewhat regular event that happens once every few years between certain neighboring powers over disputed claims. It's not a full on war and is usually resolved in a few months with limited and contained damages. Worry not! Everything suggests that these skirmishes will be nothing out of the ordinary. So a couple of blows here and there until one of the two parties grows tired and claims their objectives have been achieved. And that would be all of it, if not for a little new variable in the equation. A variable ever so little, but certainly not insignificant. Among the audience, whispers and suggestions try to guess at what that would be. As theories and ideas are shared and commented on, the projector transitions to this next slide, specters. You know how the saying goes, that we, the Tellians, have a haunting past. That the ghost of violence always hunts us. That no matter how hard we try to hide from others, everyone knows what our ancestors were capable of doing and did. And that's the key word, were. Silence comes back to reign in the room. We are no longer what we were. We grew up, we changed, we are nowhere comparable to what we were in the past. The ghost of violence is just that, a spectre. It does not exist. We, as a society and a species, are no longer capable both physically and mentally to perform such acts that defined our past. In no way, shape, or form could we replicate the exterminations of the fifth era take on the zarlak hordes like we did in the 7th era, or install a regional hegemony based on the strength and fear as what was in the 8th era. We have to accept the fact that our past is what it is, the vast. For better or worse, this shift in attitude is what brought the Tellians to what is considered the new golden era, a period of stability and cooperation between species that allowed for a significant growth in commerce and quality of life. But I wouldn't make this speech without a reason, so let me present to you the real threat that would be looming over us, says the instructor in a very theatrical manner, as all gasp in stupor, seeing the contents of the next slide. Humans, these are the real wild cards. From the dark, silhouette can be seen raising its hand. After being allowed to speak, the voice asks for an explanation on why humans of all things are considered a greater threat than the Keltians known for their physical strength and elite warrior culture. As you well, well know, humans are a relatively recent addition to the coalition's roster. They are more widely known for their origin as deathworlders and their apparent cheerful and carefree behavior. But as you might have guessed by my phrasing, that is only a facade. The same voice that asked the previous question replies in confusion, stating that they met several times with humans and even the most unfriendly ones were welcoming for galactic standards, and that day uh, didn't appear all that threatening. Now, I won't bore you with the specifics, also because it's highly classified documentation, but we think humans have the strongest military in the Orion Arm, possibly the single most powerful military force in the known galaxy. The cadets cannot hide their excitement or terror as the rumor erupts in uproar. That aside... We have reason to believe they are not even remotely interested in interfering in our skirmish, so you can sleep well knowing that. One of the young officers asks why humans have been mentioned, if they do not possess an actual threat. And with this, let me move on to the next slide. The word shown by the presentation this time is shadow. Given the context, do you know the difference between a ghost and a shadow? Many tried to guess the right answer, but none succeeding. Spectres, as said before, are not real. Shadows are. Shadows follow us everywhere. Shadows cannot be faded away, not even by the strongest ray from the strongest star. Quite the opposite. The brightest light casts the darkest shadow. Shadows run just as fast, if not faster, than us, and despite our best efforts, we cannot ever part ways with them. Humans. Humans. Humans have the scariest, deepest shadows. A creepy silence takes over the room. As all voices finally quiet down, the instructor continues his last lecture. While we are incapable of replicating our past, humans' potential for destruction grows hand in hand with their technological innovation. And that is why their shadow grows darker and wider every hour, every minute. It's no longer just a pool of darkness. It is an abyss filled by numerous unspeakable horrors of their past and the infinity of unimaginable acts possible in the future. The shadow of war has and will always accompany humans until the heat death of the universe. Thankfully, the Terrans know of the miasma of death that follows them like a wicked puppy and try their best to train it and make it behave. Trust me, they do everything possible to keep it under check. But the problem is that we don't know what could cause the owner to let go of the leash holding his hound back. We don't know what would be crossing the line with humans, because truthfully, they themselves do not know what that would be. When on the front lines, as you sit in your comfy chair giving out commands, remember these words, remember these few minutes of your life, and remember them well. If you see a Terran insignia, do not attack it. Do not approach it. If possible, order all your forces to stand down or even retreat. If you see the blue globe with the white continental lines on the side of his ship, be it random cargo hauler or even a goddamn insignificant mining drone from Wish, try to contact it immediately and help them out in any way possible. Halt an entire battle group if necessary. It could even be a setup to drag humans into the conflict for what you might know. But you will have to try your very best to not give them a reason to unleash the war monster that hides in their shadow. A beast so scary, they spent all their history trying to team, writing laws, treaties, and articles, trying to regulate the exercise of violence. They try to convince us that they are friendly and to open cooperation, and this is true until you cross the line, a line that keeps going back and forth, a line that cannot be understood. In conclusion, it is very simple. The revised Geneva Convention dictates how to conduct war between humans. It's a very well-thought-out treaty that limits the use of much of humanity's weaponry. The only problem is that we, as you might have guessed, are not humans. So, by the God's DON'T GIVE THEM A REASON TO USE US AS target PRACTICE FOR THEIR UNTESTED ARSENAL. PLEASE. End of story. There is a new legend on the horizon. Blueberry Cat has taken the T6 Patreon spot Thank you very much, and I'm sure that I speak for everyone when I say that. I would just like to thank our T5 members, Lord Azricle, Ambrose Cattell, Quantum Wednesday, Dregzoon WRE, Blueberry Cat, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster177, and Leslie517. Thank you very much.